Thank you for joining with us this morning. You know, isn't it amazing how much the topic of money comes up in our conversations? We talk about wealth, how to make money, how to spend it, how to save it, how to invest it. Jesus himself uh, talked much about wealth and riches. Uh, one third of his parables were dedicated to the subject of wealth. And, and of course, we all know that the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of evil, not money itself. But wealth, we do know, or riches, can be very deceptive. So as we continue our journey through the book of James this morning, James picks up on the subject of the deception of wealth. So if you will, turn to James chapter 1. Now, the term rich or wealthy is relative, for example. This may shock you, but if you live in a totally enclosed space, if you have at least one change of clothing, or if you are certain that you'll have three meals tomorrow, you are more wealthy than over 60% of the world's population. Let's carry this a step further. If your household income is $50,000 a year, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest in the world. If your household income is $75,000 a year, you're at the top 2% of the wealthiest in the world. And if your income is $100,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of those when it comes to wealth. So think about that. James, this morning, as we look into this text, is going to be talking probably to every one of us in the terms of the fact that we are wealthy. So as a way of introduction, the verses that we're going to be looking at today are not saying that wealth is wrong in and of itself. This passage is, is referring to those who have allowed their wealth to become the controlling forces or controlling pursuits of their life. And, and, and for them, James has a warning as it relates to their place in life. And so if you look at James chapter 1, we're going to go back to verse 9, pick up verses 9, 10, 11. We skipped those as we made our way, but I wanted to tie them to chapter 5. But look at verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, let the lowly brother glory in exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. That literally means that, that the, the person and the wealth that they've accumulated will all pass away. Uh, many uh, years ago, Gary preached on a subject, or uh, the title of the message was, It All Goes Back in the Box. And that is so true. You think of the, the game Monopoly and the fact that we, we get there and we build and we buy and we build these little empires on this board. And, and then at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. That's what James is basically trying to communicate here to us. And so he, he's saying that we need to be careful with these pursuits of wealth, that it may not uh, fulfill us in the way that we think it will. Verse 11 says, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And I think James is basically saying, pay attention to your pursuits. Pay attention to the controlling forces in your life that lead you into the passions and the pursuits that you have. Because for many people, those pursuits may bring some form of fulfillment for a short time. But when it's all said and done, when it all goes back in the box, there's something that will be said about that moment. There will be a certain way that we will think about things when we get to that moment in life. Now... The bottom line 
here that James is talking about is that wealth can be deceiving. It can be very misleading. So turn over to James now chapter 5 that we'll pick up with verse 1. This is what James is basically saying. It's almost like he's continuing this conversation. He says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Now think about that. The wealthy. When we see the wealthy or those who are rich in our society, we don't think of the misery that they must be under. But, but, but James is basically saying these things eventually carry a, a form of misery associated with, with wealth. He's, I think he's kind of getting on the whole idea of its deception. When he says the first two words in verse 1, come now, he's literally saying, listen up. Consider strongly what I'm saying. And then he says in verse 1, you who are rich. He's addressing those who have wealth, those who have riches. And again, we've already proven with the introduction this morning that many of us or all of us would probably fit into this category of rich when it comes to the rest of the world. And then the last part of verse 1, let me give you a paraphrase of what he's trying to say. He's basically saying, grieve and repent over missed opportunities and wrong pursuits. He's basically saying possibly there's going to come a time in your life where you're possibly going to get to the end of your life and if your pursuits are not right, you're going to come to the end and you're going to realize that your pursuits were all wrong. Your pursuits are not going to have a lasting effect. And he's very strong in this. In Proverbs chapter 10, it says, The blessings of the Lord makes one rich or makes one wealthy. And then it says this, And he adds no sorrow with it. Now think about that. God's blessings of wealth do not enslave, do not lead us on wrong pursuits. What he's saying here is it appears that, those, that, that, that this, uh, this, this wealth that God gives us, when it adds no sorrow, is talking about the channels in which we can use that to touch the lives of others, the channels to give. And then he says in Proverbs 11, he who trusts in his riches will fall. He, he's basically saying if you're trusting only in riches in this life, there's a good chance you're, you're, it's going to let you down. It's not going to produce what you think it's going to produce. But the righteous will flourish like foliage. He's saying there's more to this life than the pursuit of riches. There's more to this life than attaining wealth. So when you think about it, godly direction and purpose, when you really think about it, are decided by our pursuits. So this morning, that's really what I want to challenge you with. What are your pursuits in life? What are you allowing to be the controlling forces in your life as you live your life before God? Someone has said, God will not condemn a person for being wealthy, but he will ask them two questions. How did you gain your wealth and how did you use your wealth? You may say, now, that sounds good, but how do we say that's biblical? Well, really, that's what Jesus was attempting to tell us in his parables. He was basically alluding to those facts. How we gain our wealth, it's important to know that. And, and, and what do we do once we have that wealth? Now, when you start to begin to think about the right pursuits in life, you, you have to wonder about this whole idea of fulfillment. 
the, the greatest fulfillment in life, I believe, and I think many of us would agree if we think of it through this lens, is doing what we're created to do, to uh, giving what we're intended to give, investing in those we are called to invest. All of these pursuits must be, I believe, controlled by the Holy Spirit. If we say that we're believers of Christ or followers of Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit resides within us. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is literally orchestrating our lives. It's bringing correction. It's notifying us when we're moving in the wrong direction. It's teaching us. It's showing us what we should be paying attention to. We find that. And so if that is something in us, that should be the controlling force. And if that's the case... The pursuits of life will bring the greatest fulfillment. It's interesting. I think what James is getting ready to show us in these next verses is that whole idea of how wealth can deceive. And, and, and the first misleading voice of wealth is the voice of idle wealth. Now, when I say idle, I'm talking about I-D-L-E, those things that are just kind of idled. And, and, and if you look at verses 2 and 3, he's definitely talking about that. He says your riches, okay, those who are rich, he's just talked about the fact that they're weeping in their hound, there's misery associated with the wealth. He says your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now these two verses... I mean, it's really a mouthful when you begin to look at it. But really, I think what James is trying to, to show us is this whole idea of hoarding money or, or, or misusing money or mishandling money or riches. And really, it's the idea between hoarding money and saving money. Hoarding money is one thing. Saving money is a different thing. Now, how do we get to that point of the difference? Well, there were three ways... There are three ways in which in our society we tend to determine whether someone's wealthy. Some people would say it would be the size and location of their home. Uh, maybe others would say it would be the make and model of their car. Uh, some would say, no, the bottom line is uh, the, the totals of their uh, portfolio when it comes to their wealth. Now, in the first century, they had ideas of that, too. What, what would determine a person's wealth? And there were three primary sources or resources of wealth. Uh, it would be grain, it would be garments, or it would be gold. And, and it's interesting when you look at these things, uh, uh, the idea of grain, the fields, and the, uh, the harvest that would come and bring the wealth in, or the garments that would display to, to let others know that you are of means. And then, of course, the gold or the, the special uh, or precious stone or whatever it may be. These were things in the first century that people had that helped cause people to take note of their wealth. So basically what James is saying, he say there's something wrong with these riches, these riches. And he mentions them again in verses 2 and 3. First, he basically says, this person goes into his barn and realizes that his grain has rotted. He has so much that it's just basically rotted away. Look at what he says in verse 2. Your riches are corrupted. They're, literally, it means rotten. He then goes into his closet and realizes that his clothes he hasn't worn in months are moth-eaten. He's very clear in verse 2. He says, your garments are moth 
eaten. And then lastly, he goes to the safe and discovers his gold has been stolen. He checks his stocks and realizes his portfolio has decreased in value. He says this in verse 3, your gold and silver, your investments are corroded. And then James is talking about the idea of that hoarded wealth. Those things are just kind of hanging out there and what can happen to them. So look at the end of verse 3. He says, you have heaped up treasure. That's the idea of hoarded in the last days. Now think about that. You're hoarding things up in the last days. Now, these last days, what is that a reference to? Well, most people would say, okay, it's a reference to Jesus coming back and all that. And that could be true because the, the, the passage just before this, you do have that idea of judgments that's there. But many commentators believe this is talking about crucial days. Uh, crucial days. And, and I believe we're living in crucial days, just like the first century. There were crucial days. There were things that were out there that needed to be addressed, just like today. And of course, we know as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been given the mandate to make Him known, to bring glory to Him. And the way we can do that, one of the simplest ways we can do that is through the means and the resources that He's given us. And so basically he's saying in these crucial days, in these last days, you basically have wasted what you've been given. Again, James here is talking about the tragedy of unused resources or money or wealth. Now, the Bible does not forbid us from laying up wealth. There's nothing wrong with having a savings account, with preparing for the future. Matter of fact, the Bible says in some places that that's prudent for us to do. Uh, to have emergency funds, to, to prepare for something, that, uh, a big expense that may be coming down the line. But the question we look at many times is, how much is enough? How much is enough when it comes to riches and wealth and what we're going to build our lives upon? And really the question with that comes this question, who determines how much is enough? There have been writers, Christian authors in the, over the years who have basically helped us look at our finances from a biblical standpoint. Larry Burkett did years ago, and now Dave Ramsey's kind of carried that mantle. And, and, and basically it's that idea of being good stewards of what God has given us. And both of these authors have come and basically said we should live our lives in such a way that we do use the resources that God has given us to give, to help people, to advance the kingdom as it relates to what God desires. So really the question about this is, is what has God given you? What, what, how much is enough that you can have, that you can build a life upon, and then, and then above that, give to these other things? You see, James goes on further to say that there's going to come a time that, that we are going to, that you, unused and misused money or riches will be used as a witness against us. Look at what he says in verse 3 again. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Boy, that is a strong and powerful warning. And what he's basically saying is this. There will be a judgment out there awaiting you that's basically going to be, what did you do with what I've given you? When we stand before God, what did you do with what I've given you? It's a point of accountability. He's going to bring accountable, he's going to hold us accountable for what he's blessed us with. And we see that here. 
So some have asked, or some have said this, you can't take your money with you. But according to this verse, you can. It possibly will be there as a witness against you. And that's basically what James is trying to tell us in this misleading message of hoarding. Not only the voice of idle wealth, but also the voice of illegal wealth. And it's that idea of unearned money versus earned money. Look at verse 4. It says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the phrase, the Lord of the Sabbath, it could, could be translated the Lord of hosts. It's a reference to the armies of God. And basically, verse 4, I mean, I mean, you think about the dangers he's warning rich people with. He's basically saying, listen, if you don't treat people right, if you don't give them what they have earned, he's basically saying you've come up against battle, you've come to a battle with God at that point. And, and, and that's powerful when you think about it. But what he's talking about is wages that are not paid to those who earn it. To understand what James is saying here, you really have to go back to the first century. In the first century, there are what we would call day laborers. Most days, there would be a, a, a place in which people would go. And from there, uh, people who wanted to hire people would go. And, and they'd go to a certain location. And they, the, the employer would pick out certain people to go with him to handle uh, uh, some project or, or some job that needed to be done. At the end of that day, that laborer would be paid for what they'd done for that day. Now, Jesus talked about this in one of his parables. He says that the laborers would get in line to receive their pay. And many of those people, and here's what we need to understand, were living day to day. So a lot of that day laboring was whether or not they were going to eat before they went, or, or their families going to eat before they went to bed that night. And so it was very, he's really clear in what he's saying here. This was a big responsibility for the rich to pay those in what they were owed. So therefore, it's important that they receive their pay the day that they worked. You fast forward to the 21st century, and there are those looking for ways not to pay those who have rightly earned their wages. Uh, those wages not paid, he's saying here in verse 4, will be a witness against those who did not pay. It was their they, they were called to do that. They were given much. There was a job. They, they performed that job. And God, when you think about it, He's a just God. He wants to see justice done. And so we see this in verse 4. But let's turn this around. What about the responsibility of the worker? As a follower of Jesus Christ, it should be an honest day's pay for an honest day's wage. While we are on the subject, we as Christ followers, when you think about it, we should, we should be some of the greater employees that our, uh, that our employers have. We should have a testimony of, of good work, of quality work, of someone who puts their best foot forward. It's all about the testimony. Think about what Titus writes in Titus chapter 2. It says this, Exhort laborers to be obedient to their employers to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not stealing, but showing all good faith that the employer may appreciate, listen to this, the doctrine of God our Savior in all things, that the people may appreciate God and who He is because of the work He's doing in the life of that employee. So how we deal with money matters has much to do with our testimony. Unearned money 
versus unearned money. A third misleading voice of wealth, the voice of indulgent wealth. And it's the idea of spending money versus giving money. Look at verse 5. He says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Of course, he's talking about cattle. He's talking about those who you, you have this animal and you're fattening it up for the slaughter, so to speak. He's basically saying the same thing is happening for many of you who are rich. Now think about this. When it comes to the whole counsel of God, there is nothing wrong with enjoying the things money can buy. Paul tells Timothy concerning those who have that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But someone has rightly said this. Money is not only to be enjoyed, but it's also to be employed. It's there for the using. It's there for us to not only use on ourselves, but to invest in others, to invest in the kingdom. But what stands in the way? Verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You see, when our needs, our wants, and our desires become the number one pursuit in our lives then we have swayed away from God's desire for our life. They then become the controlling forces of our life. You know, I knew when God was up to something in my own life, when it came to my own finances, I remember the time where my wife and I, we got married at a young age, and, and we were, we were kind of like those day laborers. We were living day to day. We, we, you know, did we have enough to get to the next day? And then it, uh, we began to live a little longer and started, then it was a week to week type thing. And, and many times we read these scenarios of people here in America. Uh, I've read somewhere where 70% of Americans live week to week, just trying to make it week to week. But, but when you think about this whole idea uh, as God began to, to bless our efforts and we began obedient giving and doing what He called us to do, we began to look at what God had placed in our life. And, and we went from trying to live day to day to week to week to that point in our life where, okay, God, you've given us this. Is this intended for us or is this something you desire us to give? Do you want us to, how do you want this to be used? And it's very interesting. That was probably the most, grat grat most gratifying time of my life when I realized God had placed something in my life that was not necessarily just for me, but also that, that it could be used in the lives of others, to invest in others, to advance His kingdom. Really, as I said earlier, it really goes back to what are the controlling forces in your life. For we as Christians, followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit is a controlling force. What's he telling us to do? Which voice is he putting forth when it comes to our wealth? But for many, they don't even look at that. They just continue to live in luxury and indulgence, and they continue to move. Now, now here's a danger when it comes to what he says in verse 4. There's a tendency that when people live the life of luxury, that many times they relax their morals. Uh, soft living, many people have said, can lead to moral weakness. Part of that is because there's more time to, to live more luxury with time. I mean, finding things to do. You have more things available to you the more that you have. And for some people, it's gotten them in a lot of trouble. Uh, for some, it's wrecked families. Uh, for others, it's, it's just that time in which they just, you know, they, they, they feel like that's theirs. And they start charting their own course in life. It no longer is trusting God for, for the daily things that we need to. Now I'm determining those things. And there's a danger that can be associated with that. 
Lastly, I want to speak on the idea of invested wealth. I came across this uh, interview with Warren Buffett. Um, and Warren Buffett, many of you know, is one of the wealthiest men in the world. Huh? His portfolio is worth over $70 billion, the last I heard. And uh, it was recently he had already given $20 billion of that away to some research. But Warren Buffett was once interviewed, and, and listen to what he says. I know people who have a lot of money, and they get testimonial dinners, and they get hospital wings named after them. But the truth is that nobody in the world loves them many times. If you get to my age, and of course he's in his 80s, if you get to my age in life and no one loves you and you didn't invest in others, I don't care how big your bank account is, your life is a disaster. And, and, and I don't know where spiritually Warren Buffett is, but this is a man, a self-made millionaire, who basically says when it's all said and done, when you get to, to, to these pursuits in life and you get there and you have $70 billion, he came to the realization that the wealth is really not what life is all about. It's not the fulfillment. The fulfillment comes with those in which you invested in that love you and you love them. I think that's well spoken from someone worth $70 billion. But Paul tells Timothy, Timothy is a pastor of a church uh, in which there are many wealthy people that seem to be a part of this congregation, at least in the first century. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy to tell the congregation. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. That's what James is saying also. But in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. Not relax morals, but continue to focus on doing good things with the wealth. Ready to give, willing to share, and as a result, they will be storing up for themselves a good foundation. There's something that will be fulfilling. There will be something that can be built upon as a result of them doing that. For the time is to come that they may hold life of that they may hold on to eternal life. Now, what is he saying? He's basically saying, okay, you have those who are wealthy. They're out there. They have plenty. They, they have these things. Or is it just all about them, their own life of indulgence? Or are they looking to invest in others? Are they looking to expand the kingdom of God? Paul's basically saying, hey, Timothy, tell them to build a foundation that will be eternal, not something temporal, which can be corroded, that can be corrupted, that can be stolen, but to build something that will last. That will bring the greatest of fulfillment when it comes to the use of wealth. And then Jesus said in the most, probably the, the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where a thief can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where your pursuits are, listen, there your pursuit, there your heart will be. So these pursuits, where are they leading us? Are they leading us to something that is temporal? This eventually going to go back in the box. Are they, are they leading us to something that is eternal in which God can use to, to continue to build his kingdom? And think of the fact that you had the privilege to be used mightily by him to, to invest in others, to build the kingdom. 
So here, what is he basically talking about? He's talking about uncertain money versus certain money. And then, here's the application. To which voice do you listen? We've talked about these different voices. We talked about how misleading uh, wealth can be and the deceptive forces that go behind wealth. What voice do you listen to? Maybe better questions are this. To what do you invest in? Is your life just about investing in yourself? Is it about just you and yours? Or, or, or do you intentionally invest in the things that are beyond you, especially those things that are eternal? And then another question would be this. To whom do you invest? Do you invest in others? Do, do you realize that you have something to offer? And by the way, listen, our wealth is not necessarily determined by money. Our wealth can be the, the gifts God's given us, uh, the ability that we have to, to, to invest in other people's lives. That's great value in that. That's wealth in and of itself. But the question is, what is your life really all about? Are you making the proper investments? And then here it is. We come to verse 6. And boy, he really says it. Listen to what he says. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, you could look at this and say, what is this saying? When it says he does not resist you, it's basically saying you're rich. You have means. You can crush people if you desire. Matter of fact, you can have people taken out. I mean, because you're rich, because you're wealthy, you can do very destructive things. A paraphrase would be something like this. You have not only made a mess of your own life, you've also made a mess of others' lives, and judgment is coming. It's, it's that idea that what was your life, I mean, there's one thing for our life and what it is, but what is your life intended to be? And it comes, I think there's, there's a, a whole idea of the, of the wealth and the resources God brings into our lives. And, and the fact that we don't give to those things He's called us to give to, guess what? We're part of the ruin that is being left undone. The misused money, the, the money does not use, the resources. So here's a great, here's some questions I want to close with. What you ask yourself, do you, do I hoard? Do I hoard? Do I keep accumulating, accumulating, and to the point that it becomes waste? It becomes something that's unused? It rots? I think a lot of people hoard for the reason that they really just don't trust tomorrow. And they're always holding back to, to see what tomorrow may bring. But there's a great measure to our lives. When we're being led of the Holy Spirit and we're a child of God, the Bible says that we are to trust in Him, not in the riches of this world. So that hoarding, what, what's that all about? Give it away. Give it, get, let God show you what He desires to do with it. Here's a great question. Am I guilty of over-accumulation of wealth? Is my life or the controlling passions of my life, the controlling forces, is, is it just to gain, gain, gain and for myself? Here's a good one. Is there financial deception in my life? You know, it's interesting. We've, we've talked about King Solomon in this study. Uh, it's interesting. When you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon basically, you know, he's gone through all of life. He said, I did this and I did that. I withheld nothing from me and I accumulated this and I had this. And at the end, he said, you know something? It was all vanity. It didn't really have a core meaning to it. There's nothing really fulfilling in and of itself. And he came to that conclusion. Are, 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 
basically, are, are you financially deceived and thinking that if you could just get to this point in your life, you'll be happy? Or if I could just get to this point to retirement and have this amount in my portfolio or in retirement or whatever, if I could just get to this point. Someone said this years ago, and, and many of you have probably heard this. It's basically, what, what, if, what if you're like consumed of you just climbing the ladder only to realize it was leaning against the wrong building? Wouldn't that be a sad commentary to get to that point late in life? To realize that the whole life that you built and the pursuits and the controlling forces in your life just totally deceived you and there was nothing to it? How about this one? Have I fallen into the world's ideal of self-indulgence? It's amazing how much the world tells you how much and what you deserve. And you get into this life and it's like, okay, uh, the Joneses have this. Maybe I need this. Maybe this will make me happy and they have that. But it really goes back to this whole idea. How much is enough? How much is enough? And, and, and what can I live on? And what can God use? And how can God take the excesses? And how can God even take some of the sacrificial things that I give? That Maybe there's things in my life I deny myself from having that I can give. How about this one? Am I a good steward of what God has given me? Am, am, I, am I going through life putting financial uh, advice from God's Word and, and His wisdom when it comes to my finances? The book of Proverbs is full of financial wisdom. And, and it's amazing. I, I live probably most of my adult life probably outside of God's will financially. And there came a point in my life where I just kind of got sick of it. I got tired of being in bondage to debt. And I got sick of being in bondage and living day to day and then week to week. And, and, and now, you know, some years ago, uh, God just convicted me of it, repented of it. And we, my, me and my family, we moved in the right direction. And, and I'm telling you, God is blessed. And I think there's greater fulfillment in my finances, not because I've arrived at a certain point in my life, but because now I have the opportunity to invest and give and see how God can use me and what He's blessed me with, that I can give that to someone else and God can bless others, uh, whether it's someone individually or even the kingdom of God. This message this morning, I hope, has been something that's challenged you. It's, it definitely challenged me when I was looking at it and preparing for this. But, but really, it really comes down to this. What do you want God to accomplish in and through you? I believe the true follower of Jesus Christ, I think for there to be the greatest fulfillment you can have in your life is for you to be intentional about waking up every day thinking, okay, God, what do you want to do with me today? How do you want to use me? How do you want to use my gifts? How do you want to use the resources you've blessed me with? Where do you want it to go? That is fulfillment. But we've got to get to a point where we denounce the deception that we live in. We repent of certain things that we brought into our lives that keep us there, and we just make a beeline to, to just not be satisfied until we're living the life the Holy Spirit is leading us to live in our finances and in every area of our life. So I want to close with this, this prayer. And let this be your prayer. Lord, help me to make sure that I am pursuing the things you desire me to pursue with my life. Help me to realize that you have blessed me to be able to bless others and expand your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this morning.